We're in John 11 this morning, day in the life of Jesus, and I've entitled it Undeniable Grief, Unending Joy. Now, when I was putting together this series, I will tell you, I didn't know that all this was going to be going on in our lives and what was taking place specifically in this time frame, but I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed preparing for today. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. In, in this accounting of events, the, the writer John goes from the present moment into the future with Mary's act of anointing Jesus and then back to the present to help set the context for what he is writing. The scriptures give us very little indication into this man, Lazarus. Um, we, we don't know his age. We don't know his occupation. Other than his sisters, we don't know anything about his family. We're given information by both John and Luke that Jesus spent time with Lazarus in his home. His disciples were there with him at times, and, and they showed great hospitality to him and the disciples. And it was a place where they could go and they could be welcomed. They would be safe. We also know that Lazarus was one of the few friends that Jesus mentioned by name in the Gospels. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Who were Jesus' friends? I mean, we know he had his disciples that traveled with him, but, but did he have people outside of that? We, we get indication that he had at least Lazarus. And we're told very clearly that Jesus loved his friend. What we read next starts to frame the entire focus of, of this account and, and, and gives great insight into how Jesus dealt with extremely deep extremely heavy, extremely heartaching times, and how he comes on the scene in those moments and shows the reality of their temporary nature. And that's important. Lazarus is seriously sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Contrary to popular belief, the most important thing in the world is not personal happiness. It's not self-satisfaction. It's not individual comfort. In fact, the most important thing does not focus on humanity at all. It focuses on God. All things from the creation of the universe and all it contains, the rescue of fallen humanity, the splendor of heaven, are for the glory of God. Paul captures it like this, very succinctly. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So be it. Amen. And so no matter what we might take away from this account, no matter what lessons we might learn about friendship or we might learn about grief and sadness or life and death, 
All of it is meant to place on display the glory of God, which is the constant refrain of Scripture. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of his hand. Psalm 19, Psalm 57, be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let your glory be above all the earth. Psalm 72, blessed be the glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Two, so be it, so be it, right? Psalm 113, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens and John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as God's glory is displayed, it gives even more evidence to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God As we walk through this passage, I I want you to look at the things we've been encountering in this Day in the Life of Jesus series we've been in. The way that Jesus lived, the the interaction that he had, the the way in which we are to look at those interactions and all of those things, and, and we're called to follow them. Specifically, how does Jesus, in this moment of time, with Lazarus and his sisters and all of these people, how does he engage purposefully this moment, communicating God's desire to, be, to come near? How does Jesus bring gospel presence, the good news that we can be embraced and accepted by God because of who Jesus is and what he's done? How does Jesus make meaningful impact in these moments of time? Showing that he came for the good of those separated from God. And he desires their separation to end. As you do this, it informs your walk with Jesus. It informs who we are called to be as we see him doing the things that he has called us to. John continues, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Right? I love you, but I got a couple of uh, appointments that I got to do first before I come. I I know you chopped off your foot, but I'll I'll be there. It's going to take me about two days. Right? John could have left this part out. Actually, right? He could have, could have left this part out. If, if he wanted to make the, the closeness and the love aspect of the relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus and his family, the most important thing. Because as you read it, you can question that and, and even see what appears to be a lack of love and compassion. I mean, imagine telling that to your children when they are in deep need. They are in pain and suffering and sorrow and all of those things. And you say, okay, be there in a couple of days. It just doesn't look right. But why the delay? Was, was he waiting for Lazarus to die? Was he, was he doing it for a more dramatic effect? Right? Was he testing these sisters? And their, their actual faith in him? Or was he simply once again showing that God does not operate on man's timetable? That's a good one for us to write down as a note. God does not operate on my timetable. 
Whatever the reason, it maps out like this. It took a day for a word to reach Jesus, John 10. He was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, a full day's journey away. Jesus then delays two days, and then it takes him one day to travel to where Lazarus is. At some point on day three, Jesus says, Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? The disciples knew the inherent danger of Jesus going anywhere near Jerusalem in this time. The hornet's nest had been stirred. They were ready to to take him by force and do harm to him. And so they were cautioning him. In, In their logic, if this sickness wasn't going to end in death, as Jesus had said, they reasoned there's there's no real urgency. Let's uh, let things cool off for a couple of months. You know, let them settle down a little bit. Then we can go. The, The problem was the disciples weren't seeing the picture that Jesus was seeing. The disciples did not have the insight into this that Jesus had. So Jesus answered them in this way. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Now, the disciples would have understood this from the perspective of work. They don't do it like we do today, right? Eight-hour days or whatever. It was, it was the time frame normally of, of daylight to be able to work. But Jesus was, was giving them more. Maybe, maybe not that they would understand in that moment. You remember last week we talked a little about that, how Jesus would say something? And then later on, they would say, ah, that's why he said that. There were were things that they would reflect on later that would solidify their faith. It would solidify their faith by solidifying their understanding of what was going on in that moment when Jesus was talking to them and they didn't get it. The, The 12 hours of work in the day illustrated, though, the time that Jesus had been given to accomplish the work of his father. And so whatever Jesus was meant to do, he had to do it during this time frame. There was a clock ticking on the life of Jesus. And and no matter how difficult, no matter how dangerous it was, there was no fear in Jesus. He was doing the will of God. There was no fear in Jesus. He was doing the will of God. Another thing to write down. If I am doing the will of God, there should be no fear in doing that. Jesus said, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus was not concerned, nor did he fear, even though death was coming. It would not come to him until he had accomplished all that God desired for him in his life on this planet. His days would not be shortened by doing what God had called him to do. They wouldn't be lengthened by avoiding it. Maybe another good thing to write down. Again, John goes forward and then goes back, indicating Jesus may have given them a little bit of time to think about this. This he said, and after... He said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Now, sleep was often associated with death. um, But in this case, the disciples didn't get the reference. So Jesus had to make it plain. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So, so you understand what's kind of going on here? Most, most people struggle with death. So the disciples in this moment were not wanting to really look at it in that way. They were, they were wanting to think about it in the terms of, oh, okay, he'll, he'll get better. And, and as people struggle with death, it's for good reason, because it's the hard reality of life in this fallen world. Death comes. I would much rather be in the place of the disciples and, and maybe even delude myself into thinking a little bit that if someone is sick, even if they're really, really, really sick, as long as I know they're going to get better, it's going to be fine. And that's what they were seeing in that moment of time. Jesus has said, this is a sickness that will not end in death. So, okay, all right. I can understand their confusion, but Jesus cleared it up. He said, Lazarus is dead. Jesus, knowing all things, knew that the disciples were unclear, maybe thinking Lazarus just needed to rest for a little while. He'll, he'll be fine. And yet he probably gave him even more to consider because the report had been that he was sick. When did he get the report that he was dead? But Jesus goes on and he says, I'm, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Now this is not insensitive Jesus again, Right? This is Jesus who understands what a healing might do to reinforce faith, but he also understands what raising someone from the dead would do to reinforce faith exponentially. And for what they were facing in this time in their life, they didn't know what they were walking into in the next couple of months. They didn't know what was going to happen in the life of Jesus and and what they were going to face. They needed that exponential reinforcement. I'm glad for your sakes I was not there, he said, so that you may believe. So let us go to him. At this point, John tells us that one of the disciples spoke up. It was Thomas. And he said to his fellow disciples, let's all go so that we may die with him. Right? Now, there are a lot of theologians, there's a lot of biblical scholars that think Thomas was being pretty sarcastic there, or he was saying it in one of those ways, sure, why not? Let's just go. If he's going to die, I guess we'll all die with him. Right? That was kind of the, the take on it. I don't know if that's exactly the way, but I, I, that's kind of how I read it. Later, Thomas and the rest of the disciples would desert Jesus when he was arrested in the garden. But in this moment, there was courage. It was driven by love and devotion to Jesus, to following him on the next part of his journey. But do you ever find you're sometimes like that? Willing to follow Jesus in a moment of time, even if it costs you something great, only to find out later that when you actually have to pay the cost of what is great, you're maybe a little less willing to follow. That's our humanness, right? The disciples were not much different from us. Sometimes, at least to me, it seems like Christianity for some is the thing they do when it's convenient, when it doesn't have any cost to it. And they're willing to say, I will follow, I will go, I will, I will, I will, I will, until the I will actually comes due. And then they say, I can't or I won't. Jesus dealt with that a little bit when he said, look, let the dead bury the dead, right? Let, let all this stuff happen. You follow me. 
All of this leads to the heart of this day in the life of Jesus. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. There were some things that were going on here culturally, right? And we'll get into that in a second. Martha said to Jesus, though, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Don't you love people that just put stuff on you like that? Right? If you would have done it, it wouldn't have gotten broken. If you would have been driving, we wouldn't have been in that car wreck, right? I mean, it, man, we, we do that, though. The reality is we think we have control over a lot of things in this life, right up until the time we have to deal with death. And we realize how little control we actually have over anything. I was talking with a young man yesterday who knows the situation with my mother-in-law, and he commented, when I die, I want to go quickly. I don't want it to drag out for the people around me to have to watch. He thought he was being considerate, and I'm sure that was what was in his heart. The reality is, you don't get to make that call. You don't have the power over that. The reality of what the writer of Ecclesiastes says kind of hits pretty hard in moments like this. Ecclesiastes 8, no man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. In the moments we face the reality of death and, and truly get what James says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. To be quite honest, I, I, uh, I've not met many people who do not find the issue of death very sobering. I mean, none of you are cheering right now, knowing we're doing, doing with the, you know, the, the thing with Lazarus, right? I mean, it was much more exciting when we were dealing with something much more exciting, like the wedding at Cana, right? That was great. But, but it's sobering and also frustrating in its finality. And much like here for Martha, that is especially true when you believe that it didn't have to happen. If you had been here, Jesus, I wouldn't be grieving. If you had been here, this suffering would not be this way. For Martha, in this moment of time, death was the end of all the love that she had for her brother. It was the end of all the happiness that she had known in this life with her brother and, and would know if he would stay alive. It ended all the hopes and dreams she had for the future and life with him and her sister. And yet, in that moment of unbearable grief, with Jesus standing right there with her, she summoned from somewhere this declaration of hope. Even now, though, Lord, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you, 
She knew about the miracles. She knew about the stuff that Jesus had done. She knew about the, the, the widow's son and, and all the other things that went on. What was she expecting in that moment? It's clear that she believed Jesus, if he had been there, could have healed her brother before he died. He had done many miracles. It's also clear because of what we read later that that she was not confident, though, that Jesus could raise the dead. Healing, fine. Raising the dead, my dead brother? Whatever her beliefs or doubts about his ability, she trusted Jesus could, through his relationship with the Father, at least bring something good out of this. This grief, this loss. But have you considered that the death of Lazarus was a good thing? Have you ever considered the death of Lazarus was an integral part of God's will? Especially for all the people that were there in that moment of time who were witnessing everything that was going on. Sometimes we think about sickness and death and we forget that even in them, the glory of God is on display as they work together for a greater good, if not in this life, in the life to come. Paul puts it like this, and we know that God causes all things, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. Some people get this verse mixed up and they even sometimes quote it wrongly to get the idea that all things are good. They conflate the words that they want to hear and then they just spit them out. And as long as you love God and you are a child of God, then everything that comes into your life is always going to be good. How many can say that's not true? And yet, that's actually not what it's saying anyway. God causes all things to work together for good. Meaning that the happiness and the sadness and the gain and the loss and the blessing and the suffering, the health and the sickness, the gladness and the sorrow, they all mix together in any combination and in any quantity in life. And God takes that mixture of all of those things, and he turns it out for good. You don't get to determine the mix, though, in your life. Some people have a 70-30 mix of good things and bad things. Some people have it the other way around. And they seem to live their life with nothing but difficult and bad things coming into it. It's tough. It's tough. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus and Martha couldn't have been any farther apart in this moment of time as to what they were talking about and what was being understood. Jesus meant that Lazarus was going to be raised to life immediately While Martha assumed that Jesus was simply comforting her with the reality that at the end of the age, at the end of time, as the scripture had spoken, Lazarus would be raised to life and spend eternity with God. 
And though there was argument among the religious leaders about the teaching of the resurrection, there was even the sect of the Sadducees that says there is no resurrection and all of those things, Martha was clear. She knew, Job said, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. It makes my heart faint within me. She knew what David had said. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. There was the foundation of the resurrection. Daniel, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Martha clearly understood this teaching from the Old Testament scriptures all clearly pointing to the resurrection from the dead. And and she also affirmed the teachings of Jesus, John 5. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. John 5 again, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming, and now when the dead will hear the voice of God, and, and those who hear will live. John 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise them up on the last day. John 6 again, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So she affirmed all of these teachings, but she never considered it for right now. Jesus would not leave her there, however. He would call her to a place where she could put her complete confidence in him for all moments of life, including grief. Jesus makes this call multiple places, multiple people in the same way in John. I think it's like seven times. I am. Simple statement summing everything up, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And so he makes this statement here to her in much the same way. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am that. This is not a future day that you're dealing with one day that I'll provide for you. I am right here, right now, in front of you. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He was giving her the full scope of the resurrection. Jesus deals with the physical and the temporary and then swings to the spiritual and the permanent as was often his pattern. And in this, he proclaims, death does not have eternal claim on those who believe in him. Death does not get the victory. Death does not get to sting forever. Martha was so consumed by her loss, so focused on the end of all things, because that's what it feels like, doesn't it? When death occurs, isn't that what it feels like? It feels like the loss of all things because you can't get it back. You know it's gone. 
so focused on the loss, so focused on the end of all things, she could not see Jesus as God of the here and the now. Jesus was clearly explaining to Martha that he and he alone was the source of resurrection power and eternal life. Jesus was calling her to personal trust in him in a moment of time, here and now, to be God over death, to be God over life. And he doesn't want to leave her in that moment of time simply pondering all of the possibilities and all of those things. So he says to her, answer me in words. Do you believe this? It's easy to believe when it's not hard to believe. This question demonstrates Jesus was there for far more than simply raising a man from the dead. He was there to give eternal life and the understanding. One scholar said it's, it's one thing to hear it, to reason and to argue about it, and quite another thing to believe, embrace, and trust it. To believe is to receive and hold and enjoy the reality and the power of it with all that lies in it of joy and comfort and peace and hope. The measure of our believing, while it is not the measure of our possessing, since the smallest faith has Jesus, the resurrection and the life completely, is yet the measure of our enjoyment of it all. So it's not about simply understanding something in your head, and it's not simply about believing it in your heart. It's about how it goes out of you and what it produces in you in those moments of time. It's the reason that my wife and my mother-in-law cannot talk about death, not because they want to avoid it or don't know it's coming. She's feeling it in her body every day as she gets weaker and weaker. But the point is not that. The point is this, and that point is Jesus and what he has done to overcome death. Her response says it all. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. As far as I can believe, Lord, I believe Maybe she was in a moment like the one man who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because you know, you can't really know death until you experience it. And we personally only get to experience it once. Right? It's difficult. But Martha could now face death with a different thought process and, and maybe even with joy in, in the hope of the resurrection and in the love of the resurrector. Because surrounding all of that was now the reality of eternal life. It was no longer the end, it was the beginning of true life forever with Jesus. When she had said this, she, she went away and called Mary. Maybe she was overwhelmed and she said, I'm, I, I can't handle anymore what Jesus is saying. Let me go get Mary and she can handle some, right? I, I don't know if they were trading off. But she said secretly to her sister, the teacher is here and is calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she got up and quickly was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were there with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw her get up and quickly go out, they went out too. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Because there's some customs, again, I said that earlier, that are in play here. The, the environment that they were in was, first of all, they didn't embalm, and so they just buried a body. They wrapped it and they put spices on it because the climate and everything else in that region was going to take that body quickly into decomposition, and the less you could make it stink, the better. It's kind of honest, isn't it? But they buried someone also the same day they died for that same purpose. They, they wanted to get it there. I mean, you can imagine, you've, you've taken chicken out of your refrigerator and opened it up, and it's been in the fridge, right? Imagine if you were in 80 or 90 degree weather and it was a human body, it would be pretty tough. The other thing is that there was a, a mourning period Normally it lasted about 30 days or so and the first week would be the most intense. It was where everybody would come in and they would stay and, and they would weep and mourn and cry and, and do all of those things and try to console. And, but this group of family and friends had engaged in this mourning process now, the heaviest of it in these first four days. And, and if you've ever done anything like that, you've had a vigil of any kind with someone who's sick or even someone who's dying or even after death with a family, you know that that is a heavy time and it's physically and mentally exhausting because of the energy that you spend. The emotions in those moments are all consuming. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Doesn't that sound familiar? You almost think they're twins in that moment. But the grief was the same for Mary. It was overwhelming. It was, it was unbearable. And then she starts to weep. And Jesus sees her weeping and, and then all the other Jews that were with her that had come out of the house to follow her to wherever she was going to be there with her so she wouldn't have to be alone. They were weeping too. The weeping here means loudly wailing. So it was like, oh! Deep from within. Our culture is not like that. But there are many cultures in the world that are. And it just all is let out. Every emotion being felt is, is just let out. While this was going on, he, it says, was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. The deeply moved here refers to the very inner things like when you laugh so hard that your guts hurt or you cry so intensely that your guts hurt and you can feel it down in and it seems like it's not just in the front it goes all the way to your spine and you feel it so deeply almost you want to double over you ever been in that moment of time that's what Jesus was doing and he said to her where have you laid him and they said to him Lord come and see In the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. This was love watching unbearable grief. This was love watching overwhelming grief. 
to the point that it drove down to the core of his being, bringing him to a place of bearing it right along with them. The word wept here, though, for Jesus is different. Jesus is not wailing out loud like the rest of the Jews, and sometimes they even paid mourners to come alongside. It was almost mandated that you have at least one that you pay. Some people believe that Lazarus and Martha and Mary may have been of some means, and so they would have been able to pay many, so it would have been even louder and louder and louder. But the weeping that Jesus does is very different than what's described of the people. Everyone else was wailing, Jesus, according to what this word is defined as, as it's used throughout history, is silently bursting into tears. That's the best way it can be described. Have you ever seen somebody like that? Have you ever done that? Been so emotionally overwhelmed and you're trying to hold it in. And then all of a sudden you just... (laughs) You don't want to be loud. You don't want to grab attention. You don't, you don't want anybody to look at you. It's not about you, but you have to deal with it. And as they saw him doing that, they said, see how he loved him. They were right. Jesus' tears were because he loved Lazarus, but they were also tears of grief over the sin that had so infected the world that it would even cause this to take place. Something that could take life. He was weeping silently out of love, out of grief, But his grief was different because it was not a grief that thought death would be victorious. He knew why things were as they were. He was, as Isaiah said, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. If you ever want to talk about Jesus identifying with humanity in a real way, there are not many examples better than this to prove that he is acquainted with our sorrows and our grief, and our loss, and our pain. And that on a very personal level. Even though, in this moment, he knew what was coming next. This is human Jesus. Loving, compassionate. But it's also God Jesus. Ready to end the hopelessness associated with death once and for all. And though the crowd was pretty snarky, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? That's kind of how I heard it in my head when I was reading it. But Jesus ignored the ignorant. His mission was not to heal Lazarus, but to show the glory of God in raising him from the dead and giving proof to his power over death now and forever. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, his guts hurting from the silent weeping that he was doing, the grieving that he was doing right alongside these people, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. 
that had to be pretty wild for the people that were standing, because that was a final thing. They sealed it. It was done. You're not going back in there. And that's what Martha exclaimed. She said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. I can understand her concern. But Jesus wasn't wanting to have just one last look. A final viewing in our terminology. He was about to give his old friend a hug. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. I love that part. God hears. He always hears. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. There was not a person there in that crowd, no matter how many or how few there was, there wasn't a person there that was not going to see the glory of God. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come forth. I've seen many preachers preach this passage. And when they get to this part, they always really scream loudly, Lazarus, come forth and all that, almost as if the, the, the declaration or the, or the way in which Jesus did it or, or, or whatever, that's the most important thing. That's not the most important thing because Jesus could have just whispered it. Come out of there. The man who had died came forth. Bound hand and foot with wrappings. How much of a surprise would that have been to Lazarus? And his face was wrapped around with cloth. Jesus said to them the most practical thing in Scripture. Unbind him. Let him go. The people are standing around. Get the scene. The people are standing around at a tomb. The stone's been rolled in front. You don't roll the stone away. You never roll the stone away. The stink's going to come out of there billowing, and we're all going to fall back in disgust. And out walks a guy all wrapped up. What do you do? You're standing there. Your, your, your mouth is open. You, you shut it. It opens again. You shut it. It opens again. Your eyes are like this. You're, you're looking around at all the people and you can't help but look back. And Jesus says the most practical thing in the world. He doesn't say, look, now you have seen the glory of God. He says, unwrap the man. I love that. I, I, I read this description by one scholar. At his command... The king of terrors, which is a reference to Job 18, yielded up his lawful captive. The grave was robbed of its victory, 1 Corinthians 15. The door of death and Hades was unlocked by the one who alone holds the keys. Revelation 1. Wow. You will notice that there is no 
follow-up as to what happens next with Lazarus and his sisters, other than there were people who saw what Jesus had done and they believed in him. Later on, they would want to kill Lazarus. Read that in Scripture. Actually, we're going to kill him because, you know, he was associated with Jesus. So isn't that a bummer? You get raised to life again, and then people immediately want to kill you. I mean, but this is a day in the life of Jesus. Just a day in the life of Jesus. Where unbearable grief was met with unending joy. A short time after this, Jesus himself would die and be raised again from the dead. After that, Lazarus would die again. But this time, those who would grieve for him could not grieve the same way. They had been shown reality by the Savior. Death is swallowed up in victory. Man. Man. Now I know you think I'm all emotional because I'm dealing with this with my mother-in-law and that could possibly be true, but man, that's not why my heart is where it is right now. This world is a wonderful and miserable place all at the same time. And grief is one of the most difficult things that anybody has to deal with. And it's a process that's unfair. It sneaks up on you at the worst times. It causes you to be emotional when you don't want to be. And all of that stuff. And almost every time it happens, it robs you of whatever joy and happiness you had for the person. At least in that moment of time. But if Christ can enter into anywhere in our lives that we need to know his joy, it's there. And yet, until we experience it, it's hard to know. I was talking with a young man, different young man, and we were talking about that this week and how you can't really know what's next for you in your life and what that experience will be like until such a time as you know it. But can I tell you that from this account and from all the others, a day in the life of Jesus is just declaring to us that he walks with you every day. And no matter what the all things are, right? He takes the jumble of that mix, forms it into something, And at the end of it, he calls it good. We sing a song that says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know, he holds the future. Then life is worth living because he lives. On this day in the life of Jesus, he proved that with a spectacular miracle. And for us, he proves it every day as we go to him in moments of difficulty and grief and trials and suffering and good and and reward and blessing and all of those things. And he reminds us, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
He probably uses better English, but let's stand together as we close out. Sorry I went past the time a little bit, trying to, been trying to do better at that. I think I've done it a couple times, maybe. Lord, we are, we are truly grateful that as we come together as followers of Jesus, the experience of this time, though, often very similar because we have a format and a structure, is, is, is not unique, maybe. And yet every time we come into this time as believers together, it is a unique experience as we open our minds and our hearts to you for you to show us truth and life. And it affects us. It affects us deeply. It affects us purposefully so that we can live, Lord, with expectation and joy. And so that we can intentionally engage this life, purposefully interacting and bringing gospel presence the truth of what we've known and experienced now in you into the people that surround us, and it can have impact on them. Lord, we may not all deal with grief this week, but we will deal with life. We will deal with those moments where we say, Lord, if you would have just done this sooner, this wouldn't have happened. We will deal with those moments where I believe, Lord, but I've not gotten that far Help my unbelief. As you strengthen us, Lord, remind us that it is for not just an eternal future, someday far down the road. It's for us to experience all of who you are, your character, your nature, Lord, in the life we're living now, in the people that surround us. Would you help us, Lord, to drink deeply from these waters? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.